0: This is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative entrepreneur. Find your unique voice. Find the right mindset to succeed. Be the first to capitalize on new opportunities to make a living making your art. I'm David Kadavy. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, just hit subscribe on your podcast app. And to get your free creative productivity toolkit, sign up at kadavy.net slash tools. Chris Bailey had a crazy thought. What if after graduating from college, what if instead of getting a job, what if instead he spent an entire year learning everything he could about productivity? Chris actually followed that crazy thought. He did a project he called A Year of Productivity, carved out a year to learn about productivity. And that was five years ago. Chris has now written two books. First, The Productivity Project, and now his new book is Hyperfocus how to be more productive in a world of distraction. Chris has a unique approach to productivity advice. He mixes scientific research with his own, quite frankly, sometimes wacky personal experimentation. He once purposefully made himself bored for an hour a day with tasks such as watching paint dry or reading the iTunes terms and conditions. And as we go into 2019, we're all thinking about how we can be better in many things. This conversation will give you fresh thinking for how you keep yourself productive and focused. We're going to talk about how did Chris make the decision to turn down job offers and dedicate himself to studying productivity. The more confident that you can be in your decisions, the more focused you can be. And Chris's regret minimization technique will help you frame your big decisions. Also, how does Chris separate the scientific research behind staying productive and focused from the hype around being productive and focused. The better you can separate the wheat from the chaff, the easier you can find what works for you. And how can you start forming your own unique approach to productivity and focus? And how can you start that today? There are already clues that you can look at to start being more focused than ever. Chris is gonna share those clues with you. And this is the time of year you think about being more focused because this is the time of year you start thinking about the type of person that you want to be. And sometimes that person that you want to be, sometimes it's not always so clear. But I personally think that creative work is a perfect way to discover that person and to become that person. Because as soon as you put a goal in your mind, as soon as you find something that you want to achieve, as soon as you answer your own call to greatness you start becoming a better version of yourself because then suddenly you aren't beating yourself up over wasting time and energy. You aren't beating yourself up for watching too much Netflix or spending too much time on Facebook or getting too upset about some news item or getting impatient waiting in line at the coffee shop. You stop getting upset about those things because distractions suddenly stop being the source of pleasure that they once were. I mean, admit it, it feels good to be indulgent or angry or impatient from time to time. And distractions aren't just a source of guilt anymore once you start answering your own call to greatness because that guilt itself becomes yet another distraction. So once you answer your own call to greatness, distractions become something in the way. They've suddenly become an obstacle that stands in the way of you becoming the person you want to be. And so you start creating and you don't always know why you're creating, you don't always know what you're creating, but you're doing it anyway. And you're looking for that tingle of curiosity lining up your brain. Because that tingle of curiosity, that is the one force in this world that is more powerful than any distraction possibly could be. And before you know it, you've created a body of work. And that body of work stands there as a representation of you, of who you once were, who you've become, who you dream of being in the future. So how do I know this? Because I've lived it right here on this podcast. Three years ago when I started, I didn't know what my plan was. I didn't know what I'd learn. Over the past three years, you've been right here. You've seen how I've changed and grown. You've learned the very same lessons that I've learned from all these great guests. You've seen how those lessons have helped me publish books and believe in myself as a creative entrepreneur and to find my voice. And you've heard my own reflections on these lessons in the mini episodes. And I'm willing to bet I know, I know from knowing many of you, you have grown too. All of you have. And this growth is made possible by you and the other listeners. I could not make this show without you. As much as I like to think that I would if nobody was listening, I need you to be there as a listener to motivate me to make the show, to tell me how it's going. And even more, I couldn't make the show without the Patreon supporters. So this right here is an ad-free, sponsor-free episode. The Patreon supporters are bringing this to you right now. Every little bite of audio going into every one of your ears around the world was paid for by Patreon supporters for this episode. They paid for the production costs, the sound people making the audio crisp. they paid for the hosting, the computers all around the world delivering this audio right to your device. They paid for the publishing assistance, the people who upload the audio and the metadata, and they get it out on all the platforms whether that's Apple Podcasts or YouTube or Spotify or Amazon Echo, now even Pandora. It's all paid for by the Patreon supporters. So as the world finishes one more revolution around the sun... As you think about who you want to be for this coming revolution around the sun and the one after that and the one after that, as you think about that, start thinking about putting your money where your mind is. And your mind is on this show. You listen to it every week. You look forward to Thursday morning for your fix of Love Your Work. So why not double down on that? Why not sink in a little further? You're getting value from the show give a little value back. And you'll see that value come back to you even more many times over. So become a Patreon supporter. You'll be a bigger part of the show. Your money will be where your mind is. You'll go further down that path to being the person you want to be. Go to patreon.com slash to learn more and sign up. That is patreon.com slash K-A D as in David. A V as and Victor. Y. Here's Chris Bailey. I'm here with Chris Bailey and Chris, part of your story is that you took an entire year off uh, to experiment with productivity, to do research on productivity, and that seems like a
1: big leap. Uh, Why did you do that? (laughs) I've always been kind of weird in that way. <laughs> it, you know, the you know, so, some people have normal interests, I feel like cooking and maybe business and sports, but there there's been a weird part of me that that's been always curious about this idea of productivity. Not not productivity in like the cold Corporate sense, where it's all about efficiency, but productivity and just uh, doing what we set out to do and, and doing what we say that we're going to do. And it, it's been a curiosity of mine for for about a decade, up until the point uh, at which I graduated college uh, uni- university here in Canada uh, a few years back at the many many years back at this point. And I, I was in the four step position because I'd worked a few. Uh, Jobby jobs up to that point where I'd received a few full time job offers, but I thought, you know, if if there's a time when I should actually explore and experiment and research this thing that that I'm actually curious about more than, um, and that project would have more meaning than these other jobs that I had. I I thought it was them. And so I declined them. I figured, okay, in Canada, you can defer your student loans a little bit. So I had about $24,000 of student loans, but I also had about $12,000 saved up at that point. Enough of a financial runway uh, to live off of my savings for a year, defer the loans, and dive deep into exploring this idea of productivity, and it was a gamble. It you know it it really was. I had no audience at the start of the project. Um, everybody thought I was a freaking idiot because I I declined these these well paying jobs to to start uh, essentially a blog. But but then the blog uh, started gaining a following. People said, "Okay, this guy's." you know, he's going all in, let let me figure out what he's about. And that led in, into a book deal at the end of that project. And then uh, that book did well. And so uh, now I've been fortunate to uh, come out with a second book about uh, the science of attention and, and to continue nerding out about this topic.
0: Okay, this is something I, I definitely want to dig into a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds like you had some other alternatives. You had some other job offers on the table. Jobby jobs. Yeah. Jobby jobs. And so was this a difficult decision for you at all? How did you parse this decision?
1: Oh, hell yeah. It it was like, uh, because I'm pretty risk averse. You know, it it might not seem, you know, I I think we get attached to our stories a a little bit, but, uh, you know, it, it might not sound like I'm risk averse, but I hate, Risk you know, I try to minimize the risk in a lot of different parts of of my life and and it's tough to make a decision when you know that the decision it feels like the right one at, at that guttural and visceral level, but yet you have everybody in your life uh telling you that man, like are you stupid like you're you're giving up a job? At, uh, at so-and-so a place. So it, it, the one was with the government, one was in the private sector, uh, another other one was in the private sector. And, and so, you know, it, it looks like a foolish decision, but I, I think the riskier thing, you know, it, because I, I look at risk from a more holistic um, kind of perspective, I think a riskier thing would have been to not minimize the amount of regret that I would have felt by making that decision um, and taken one of the jobs because I would have regretted for the rest of my life not doing that, not, not making that jump. Um, and, and so you know, it, it was a tough decision, but I, I couldn't really imagine doing anything else. The the one person I will say, I always like to give her credit for this. Well, well uh, you know, I'll bash everybody else in my life, but but my fi- now fiance, uh, she she was you know going to school at the time. We we'd been together for just a a year or two at that point, if I remember correctly. And she said, like, you know what, if you don't do this, you'll regret doing this for for you know forever. I, I won't uh stop hearing about it about you know oh i should have i should have taken the jump i should have taken the leap and uh and so she was the only one that supported me and luckily she she still supports me through this day not financially but but, but, but emotionally because
0: but mostly because she didn't want to hear you uh, complain about it for the rest of her yeah, life yeah
1: she's like doing her own minimizing the regret calculation i feel
0: <laughs> okay so other people in your life were um advising you against this
1: yeah
0: and did you did you feel like oh i'm i'm crazy for doing this uh, what what sort of
1: internal processes were going on i felt like yeah especially at the beginning uh, because you know when, when i started the project i tapped into the network that that i had you know you know i worked in hr and you know because of that business background that i have and so I asked everybody in my network, like, am, if I, if I'm doing this, am I throwing away this career that, that I've built up up to this point? Cause I worked in the private sector all throughout college and, and university. Um, you know, hopefully <laughs> being productive during that time too. Uh, and. It was kind of the one, you know, decision that I've made where I made it, and I thought I don't care what anybody thinks. Um, I, I don't care what anybody says because if I'm wrong, uh, it'll cost me a year of my life, but then I won't have any regrets at the end of it. But if I'm right, the upside of, of making this decision is so much greater than the upside of of taking one of those jobs where where I'd still be, um, you, you know, working behind a, a computer monitor where I'd still be. Um, you know, in, in a cubicle somewhere, in a government building, ma- making a, a good—you know—and and by the way, th- this is not to discount people in those roles, but. But I'm someone who loves uh, structure in my life, and I I love having having the the control over that structure more so than I love the structure in the first place. And so I did feel like, especially at the start uh, of that project, because you know it started in May, and throughout the first few months—May, June, July, August, September—there was uh, a lot. There there weren't many people who visited the website. I I have to be honest with you. Um, There was a bit of media pickup at the first like, oh, this guy's a fool. Let's see how this project turns out. But... (sighs) You know, besides that, um, you know, not many people visited, and that was kind of a low point during the project. Um, but but after that point, you know, there there was a project I conducted. I think at the at the end of September, where I, I watched 296 TED Talks over the course of of a week, 70 hours of TED Talks to play and experiment with information retention and uh, how things like taking breaks affect our attention and our focus. And uh, the, toward that you know no organization other than ted wanted to interview me for for their official blog and they published this long form interview and that was the point when the project began gaining traction people started mm. to notice people thought oh ted is is covering this this guy maybe He's worth paying attention to, and that you know, I started uh, to to dive in even deeper at that point, conducting more experiments and writing more. Like um and uh, and I have really stopped since since that point. And so you know, you know, you do feel like a fool when when you make a decision, uh, and it doesn't really turn out at the start. You know, it's kind of the dip, which uh, you know, a colleague of. Of mine, hours in the productivity space, Seth Godin talks about, um, where, you know, things, you know, you feel the initial excitement, but then there's the dip after that point. But once you get past the dip and once you perseverate past that point, um, that there are often, um, things to be gained on the other side. And, and, the, you know, so yeah, to answer the question, I did feel like a fool at the beginning of the project, but it luckily, you know, the, the risk, uh, turned into a reward. And so you were about three or four
0: months in to the project when you started getting traction. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's actually a pretty short dip. Uh, Yeah. But but what was your day to day like uh, up until that point?
1: It, it was like, first and foremost, a research project. Uh, and, and so, you know, the day-to-day, it was reading books about productivity to disseminate those lessons well, to Wait, my as a
0: research project, was, yeah. was there a, a main question in your mind? Or was it just general?
1: Yeah, like, is there a secret? How do we accomplish what we set out to do? Um, is there one thing that we need to do? Or is it more a, a, of a complex uh, web, uh, th- this constellation of... Of ideas and habits that we need uh, in order to live a more productive life. Um, It it was like it was you know nobody had really done a deep dive into that world of productivity. There there are all these consultants running around uh, these like old white gray haired consultants running around you know saying oh I have this five this ten step system but they haven't really done a deep dive. Into productivity, um, there, there's a lot of corporate leaders who you know lead people to become more productive, but they haven't really digged dug deep into the science behind it. So you know, it, it was looking at the books, it, it, but it was talking to these experts to see which ones were full of shit and which ones. Actually knew what they were talking about. And I, I found, you know, that sometimes the people who call themselves experts, you know, I, I'm not a, you know, I, I like to call myself a productivity expert. Um, so I'm guilty of this to some extent too, but sometimes the people who make their living as an expert, um, they don't necessarily deserve as much credit as as the people who I consider the real experts the people who who study things like intentionality and procrastination for a living whose uh, book never really whose name never really adorns the front cover of a book but yet their work uh, influences all the books that are out there in the first place. Um, and so, you know, it started by, okay, I'm going to look at the books. But then that led me to look at the actual research behind productivity, behind uh, intention, and attention, and uh, things like meditation, and taking breaks, and the science behind that. Because ultimately, um, and and this is something that I didn't expect to find, I I thought I would kind of sift through a lot of hacks. But then I thought, okay, if if I'm actually going to do a good job of researching this topic, I have to look a bit deeper. Because that surface level bullshit, there's a lot of it out there. There's a lot of articles like, oh, Richard... Branson does so-and-so every single morning, and this is why he's a billionaire, uh, which is why you should keep your couch in the living room, or whatever the hell these these listicles like to say. But I, I think that the answer has to be rooted in science. It has to be deeper than that. It, it has to uh, have that deeper connection to who we are, to to how our brain is wired, and to how the world is wired too. And so, you know, it started... Um, you know, okay, I'm going to look at the hacks and the tactics, but it really then morphed into looking at the science.
0: Mm-hmm. That's one thing that's very clear to me when I read your books is that you clearly enjoy diving into the science. Uh, you do uh, cite a lot of studies, but then at the same time, you also have some personal experience there. And I actually, this is something that I struggle with when I think about uh, mm-hmm. writing about productivity or creative productivity specifically, and, and also working on my own productivity is that, you know, where does, how, how heavily can you rely upon scientific papers to tell you everything that you need to know? How do you think about that separation Hmm. between experience and, uh, and,
1: and, and scientific research? I think it really does depend on the research uh, because not all research is created equal you You have kind of the meta analyses where they sum up hundreds of studies you know there there are great uh, meta analyses where you know pe- people say they read you know hundreds of, of articles about a topic, but sometimes all you need to do is read one you know the the one that 's the meta analysis of how uh, caffeine influences our mental and our physical performance. How nicotine influences our mental and physical performance on grit you don 't need to read a book on grit you you can read um, I can think of one or two studies that you can read on uh, on grit that will tell you all you need to know about the topic um, but you know the, that was the fascinating thing about this this book hyperfocus is you know look i, I don 't know if you 've ever watched one of those crime shows where somebody 's like they're solving a murder. And so they have a big map in their office and attached to the map is string, attached to pictures, to newspaper clippings and articles and memos. Mm-hmm. That, that was like the state of my office with the, the big ass whiteboard that I have in here. But with studies about our attention and, and how our attention works and what you find with, with a topic like that you know, creativity is, is a great example of this too. It's very difficult to measure creativity in a laboratory. You know, a lot of the times people just, you know, they they find, okay, how many uh, uses can you find for this matchbox? And and the more uses that somebody comes up with, the more creative they are on a certain scale, um, you know, measuring divergent and convergent thinking in that way. But what what you will find... Especially with with attention. And what I like to do is focus on the research that's in situ. And so, you know, in, in situation. And so instead of saying like, okay, you know, come to a lab and we'll measure how you multitask and how often you switch between things on your computer. What these studies do is they analyze somebody in their natural habitat, you know, in front of their office computer when they're checking their email or on conference calls and then, you know, clicking around on, on social media at the same time. Th- these are the best studies and the ones that I found to be the most illuminating and valuable. So, Something that, that I did um, over the course of writing hyperfocus, I, I did this a few times. I, I flew out to Microsoft um, their their research campus in in Redmond because and believe it or not. The company conducts a ton of research uh, into our attention. They, they have thousands of researchers there because Bill Gates always believed in doing research for research's sake um, and, and so you know they have scores of, of researchers there who examine luckily, they have a great sampling of people at Microsoft you know to, to use as their guinea pigs. They look at how they work, they look at how often they switch between things, they look at how often they multitask they look maybe more important than all these factors, at how these things influence their focus and their productivity and how stressed they are. They, instead of saying like, okay, how stressed do you feel? They'll strap uh, a heart rate monitor to measure people's actual heart rate variability, which is a much accurate uh, measure of stress than somebody just saying, yeah, I feel really stressed out today, man. Um, and, and so I think it's worth focusing on studies like these over the ones that are conducted in the laboratories. Uh, and, and so that's something that I try to do because you know, frankly, you can have a viewpoint and find some studies that support it. Um, right. the, the more difficult thing to do is to look at the studies that are out there and combine those together and piece them together and and use it and build that murder map of, you know, what what's happening to our attention today, starting with the studies and working backwards. Instead, not forwards, um, t- to how we should act differently and getting a, a read on, on the way things are. And, you know, doing that, you learn th- some things that make you uncomfortable. Like that sometimes interruption is a good thing. Um, like that sometimes. We can, um, you know, be more productive as a team when we're constantly interrupted. Sometimes work is hyper collaborative in that way. Sometimes enabling a distractions blocker makes us more stressed out than it does otherwise. And so, you know, but you gain a better and, and more complete understanding of what things are actually like instead of how you want them to be. And I, I think that's everything when it comes to to topics like this.
0: Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of personal experimentation as well. I remember. Yeah you talking about being in isolation for 10 days uh, or forcing, the one I loved was you forcing yourself to be bored for an hour a day for like 30 <laughs> yeah. different days, you know, including
1: activities like watching paint dry or watching yeah.
0: your turtle swim uh, in her tank. And- Reading the,
1: uh, the iTunes Terms and Conditions. Oh, yeah. So,
0: I mean, through the course of your own personal experimentation, do you very often run into phenomena where you aren't able to find research uh, that supports your observations?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, to to come up with a couple of examples... um you know what we wear there was there was a period of time where I mixed up what I wore every single day to see how that influenced my productivity, and i didn't really find much you know in in that study um, there There were other ones um, you know the TED experiment is a good one. I, I had the chance to piece together a lot of different ideas around uh, you know things like the ideas that I was consuming, a lot of those had had to do with wellness and productivity and creativity. But maybe not necessarily from a, a practical standpoint, May, maybe more that idea standpoint. Um, there, there were other experiments like, um, I'm just trying to think, like e- eating only Soylent for, for a month, um, which was, you know, the struggle. To, I, I didn't actually make it through that one I because I just love food so much, man. It's like the, my greatest <laughs> Pleasure in life. I, I was just in New York yesterday, I had like a quick interview. I flew there, uh, and I was in the city for less than twenty four hours, and I had halal guys that that wonderful street meat uh, yeah. vendor I twice. Have a friend who really Within loves them. Yeah. What's that? You, you I have love a, fr- it? a friend
0: who's just obsessed oh, with, with. Have it. you had
1: halal guys?
0: Yeah, I have. It's good.
1: <laughs> you don't seem convinced that it's great it's it's good <laughs> that might be a sticking point for uh for the rest of it this what what yeah. don't you like about halal guys the thing is i eat
0: a very very plain diet yeah. uh beans and rice every day no 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 definitely no no beans <laughs> or rice no no carbohydrates mm-hmm. um and so it oh, makes so it yeah you wouldn't like halal I, guys <laughs> yeah well it makes <laughs> yeah, it yeah it's good i like the meat part yeah
1: yeah, but uh, yeah, it's a rice base, and so if I, I if like it all, by the way, oh yeah, I it's like it that all. It it's just I it just with, don't. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I, I hear you. I, I understand now. I, I'm not as mad at you okay. as I was a few minutes ago. <laughs> we'll be but able it's to make like, it through. Yeah, well, I think we'll make it through this interview. We'll, we'll get you know, holding hands. We'll get through <laughs> this interview together, man. But yeah. uh, like, th- th- it's just like one example of of my weakness, which is food. In fact. <laughs> And most of the experiments that I failed and, you know, often failed to, to glean lessons from uh, w- surrounded food, you know, lowering my body fat from 17 down to 10%. I hated my life during that experiment <laughs> because I, I deprived myself of, of some of the very foods that I loved so but much. But did you
0: ever find things that like really worked for you that then when you looked through the research, you weren't able to, uh, you know, find mm. uh, anything that supported
1: it? Not really. No, hmm. it's, um, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. I've ne- never really thought about that. And, and I've never been asked that. Uh, hmm. Yeah. I, I can't really think of anything because well, it surprises you know, there's, there's me. always an angle.
0: I mean, it surprises me, it Just uh, th- th- this might be a way that you and I differ in like, the way that we approach things, and hopefully we'll still be able to get through the interview uh, without being at each <laughs> other's throats during it. But um, I-, I love this idea by uh, Nassim Taleb of uh, lecturing mm. birds how to fly, that uh, w- there, there is an illusion that uh, scientific research or universities or institutions uh, develop our ideas, when in fact, it's... And it's a little bit like a a physics professor sometimes uh, lecturing a bird on physics and Mm -hmm. how to fly. And I think about examples like uh, the guy who uh, ran the first under four minute mile was didn't have very much time so he was he was he was running very intensely for short bursts and it was many years later before anybody discovered that high intensity interval training was uh more effective per unit of time than steady state training and so it seems Mm. like there especially as somebody who experiments so much with productivity i would i i would I guess I'm surprised to, to find out that you didn't find some sort of things that, wow, this really works well for me. Uh, I can't find any research that supports this. Yeah.
1: And, uh, and who
0: knows if this will be something that, that we figure out later on.
1: Yeah, th- th- this was, um, oh, so, so you're, you're, think- you're thinking of things that worked for me that, that didn't, wasn't supported by the research.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would think that research, hmm. yeah. I, re, re, research can only move so fast, you know, oh, we, yeah. have a, we have a world that moves, very slow. that moves so fast and for anybody, for any, for a study to even be done, somebody has to have some kind of an observation or a hypothesis, probably yeah. from their own personal experience that they're then able to formalize into research and then say, okay, this works across a population, by the way, which is another um, yeah which is uh, another limitation this works across a population or 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 it doesn't and so you would think that especially somebody you know experimenting all the time that, that you would yeah. find some things that that uh, you weren't able to
1: to uh, find research for yeah yeah like a, meditation comes to mind as an example of that um, because you know if you look at for studies on how meditation uh, influences our productivity. You know, fr- first of all, productivity is a very uh, difficult subject of study because what does productivity mean in the first place? You know, mm-hmm. it's um, especially when we do knowledge work for a living, when it's how much we accomplish. It, usually, um, usually these studies rely on subjective measures of of productivity. So somebody says, "Oh yeah, I was eight out of ten productive today," uh, be it, but I had less sleep, and and, and so. <laughs> you know you look at you look at fascinating things like that so there are things what you know discoveries that like meditation i find it allows me to accomplish more uh, invariably uh, i write about 47 or 40% more words when i have an active meditation practice i'm able to see more meaning around me uh, i'm able to dive deeper into my experiences but there's very little research on how meditation influences our productivity directly in, in fact th- this is actually kind of a curious uh, idea in and of itself is there's very little research on how uh, many things in influence our productivity but you know you kind of then like you uh, I, I think one of the things that that worked well for for the experiments that I that, that I conduct is that they're anything but scientific like like most of them would never pass an, a traditional ethics committee you know for, for most reputable institutions ten days of isolation
0: it, yeah that would probably be yeah, a tough
1: one. I don't think that would fly you know maybe maybe I could try pitching it to a few local universities but but, but but you know they 're kind of a frame um, that I, I use to talk about the research on a topic so, so meditation is a good example of that you know there 's very little research on how meditation influences our productivity directly really but there 's research on how meditation helps us focus um, there 's research on how it allows us to uh, you know, resist distractions in the moment and practice more meta awareness and notice uh, that our mind is wandering and that we 're veering off track uh, and so you can you can kind of say you know make the the more um, abstract connection that, that you know there 's no science behind you know the fact that meditation directly helps us become more productive, but there is this this fascinating science behind. That it, it let our, lets our mind wander to more productive places. It lets us um, gain uh, more working memory capacity to use to process information on the fly. And, and this is, you know, th- this is something else that's worth mentioning. Is you know the, the experiments weren't scientific; they're high, they're highly subjective. When it, whenever I conduct one of them, but yeah, at the same time, it's personal productivity. And, and I think this is something that you know the five, the ten step systems out there really, really miss the mark on, is that because it's personal, we have to take the advice that works for us and I think leave the rest on the table. Um, you know, some, some system that we blindly follow or some expert's advice that we blindly follow without really questioning uh, its, its, its efficacy in the first place. Um, I really think we should question, um, question those ideas and really take what, what works for us and leave the rest because our work is different compared to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're unique. We have our own lives. Um, some of us have families. Some of us live alone. Some of us work in a factory. Some of us are programmers and do knowledge work for a living. So I, I think that's something else that that is worth um, considering too, is, um, is that it's personal.
0: Yeah, and this touches on what I was thinking about as far as the uh, limitations of studies is that they, it's yeah. across a population or, or some sample size and, yeah. uh, and that, that it's personal and so some things are going to work for some people or some things are going to not work for others and there was a, a guest that I had previously Manish um, Sethi who made a, an interesting observation uh, which was that uh correlation is not causation uh, when you're doing a study like this with a large group of people. But when you're an individual, when you have an N of one, correlation Mm -hmm. is just about all that matters. Hmm. Does that make sense to you?
1: Do you agree with that? Yeah, that's a fascinating idea. Yeah, I love that. Uh, And, you know, I I would go a bit further and and say, you know, we tend to look uh, all around us for advice. And sometimes like a good prod in the right direction is, is uh always helpful that that's why I like to write my books because I, I frame them as like here are a few things that you can do in order to focus deeper, or here are some things you can do to become more productive you don't have to follow, follow some system like take take what works for you um, but I, I think at the same time we have so many data points in our own life you know if you want to become more focused, look at when you were focused in the past and, and think okay what conditions were true that created that state of focus for me. Maybe I was on a deadline. Uh, maybe I was doing work that was sufficiently challenging and, and just at my level of skills and expertise. And so I was able to enter into what at uh, Mihai calls a flow state where uh, you become one with what you're doing and, and uh, time seems to flow by so quickly. You look up at the clock and, and you think 15 minutes have gone by, but two hours have gone by. Um, you know, when, looking back, when were you the happiest what was true in, the, in those cases? When did you have the most energy? What, were you uh, letting your mind wander a little bit? Did, did your attention have a chance to rest? Um, and so I, I think that's, that's something else that we need to bring sort of that mindfulness of the past um, to, to what conditions existed previously that led to us feeling or behaving a certain way. You know, when we're more productive, when we feel more focused, when we're able to uh, enter into that hyper-focus state where we accomplish uh, in a given hour what sometimes takes us an entire day or, or an entire afternoon, we have enough data, we just don't really look at
0: it. Yeah, and I think that building this skill of uh, making some kind of hypotheses and making changes and then tracking it and seeing what works and what doesn't. I think that's a, a valuable skill. And that's actually something that I think I, that I'm curious about with you and that I think might be useful for our listeners is, you know, when you say that when I meditate, I write 40% more words. Um, how how do you come out with that outcome? Is that a, a study that is designed with a certain period of time? Uh, how are the words tracked? Uh, yeah. How do you come to that conclusion um like yeah. what are the nuts and bolts of of coming up with that information
1: yeah so so i actually charted that over the course of writing this last book <laughs> and so you know w- whenever i write a book i i always have a word count and so i print off uh, a chart every every couple of, not every day but every couple of days in my office so i have kind of the trend line of of how many words i'll need to write in order to meet a deadline and then i'll have the actual word count line which which dances around that trend line it's usually on top of it which is good because that then i'm writing i'm i'm you know ahead of my deadline and so maybe i've time to do a bit a bit more research or or deeper interviews into something but i'll also chart you know that that word count around other um experiences experiences in my life most of them don't prove to be significant for me it, but meditation i find to be something where uh, on days where i meditate for 15 minutes or more um you, you know i have a daily 30 minute vipassana meditation practice but I, I say that but it doesn't happen happen every single day but i usually find find uh the, the attention to sit for about 15 minutes. And so I find, find that on those days, you know, in charting this daily update, I kind of got curious about it in the process. I looked back on all the meditation data and I found that when I meditated uh, that day, um, that that I wrote about 40, 40% mm-hmm. more uh, thereabouts. I think it was either a bit under or a bit over. But it, it's fascinating, you know, and I think it's, it, it speaks to an idea that, um, that, that, I kept, that kept coming up over the course of writing Hyperfocus, which is that you know, the state of our attention uh, determines the state of our lives. Uh, and so if we're distracted in each moment, those moments accumulate day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year to uh, build up to make a life that feels uh, distracted and like it doesn't have a direction and we feel overwhelmed in. Uh, but on the other hand, if we have greater control over our attention which uh, mindfulness and meditation ha- help us get to um we're we're able to manage our attention so that we focus on things that are more productive in the moment we focus on things that are more meaningful in the moment you know whether it's a a conversation with a loved one or or just you know being with our cup of coffee in the morning or or a shower in the morning and and really deeply Experiencing that thing instead of uh, having our mind be on the next thing that that we want to do after that point, point. Um, and, and so I, I think you know it speaks to that idea, you know that that crux of the book, which is that the state of our attention determines the state of our life, and what impacts the quality of our attention is how much control we have over it. And, you know, there, there are a lot of different ways to, to take control, which is why it's a book length book, book. But meditation is, is one of those where, um, you know, and, and so I don't think it's really a surprise that lets me write that much more. But, you know, if I'm interested in something, and I think this is, it's kind of an attitude as it relates to productivity is productivity means so much. Um, you know, not productivity in like, like I was saying, the cold corporate sense, but the sense of just doing what we set out to do, you know, accomplishing what we intend to do, that it is worth reflecting on, on these days when we're able to write more, when we're able to process, uh, our experiences more deeply, when we're more productive than on other days in ways that we uh, actually want to be more productive. Um, and, you know, I should preface that you know, semi-interesting finding by saying that, you know, I'm not saying that the words that I wrote are good. <laughs> you know, it could be that that I wrote a thousand words instead of like say 600 or however the math works out. Um, and they were like garbage. You know, the Gettysburg Address was 400 and some words, for example, but, but I, I think it really does uh, support this idea that the state of our attention matters almost more than anything else as it relates to our productivity today.
0: That's something I was wondering about the word count thing. So it sounds like you have an ongoing uh, way that you measure word count and then you also have other ways of tracking data that you can then uh, compare to that that word count. Um, And I, I know for myself, like well, I have a project right now that I'm I'm thinking will probably end up around 10,000 words. I've probably written 50,000 words on this project.
1: So <laughs> you you overshot it a little bit. <laughs>
0: but, but I don't think that I mean this, I still think it'll end up being 10 or 12,000 words. It's just mm. that, that for me that it takes that much writing um, oh, interesting! To, to 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 end up with something good. So when yeah. when you write and you have a word count that you're going for, are are you uh, one of these writers that that sits there and plods along and makes sure that every sentence and 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 um and word is is right, or are you like me and you just barf things mm. out and then you try <laughs> to clean it up?
1: You know, the, yeah, with, with the with the two books that that I've written, like you, you start with kind of the the book proposal, and, and so in the book proposal for for each of them, because you know, going going through traditional publishers with Penguin Random House for both of them, it, there was a detailed table of contents in each of the proposals, which was about twenty thousand words. No, 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 probably about ten thousand words of just. The, the framework and the structure that the words will fit inside, and, and so once I have that, because I, I have kind of it, w- once I have that, what I do is I decide on a mix between how many stories I want to include and how much uh, practical, tactical, scientific stuff that I want to uh, include, because I think this is something that you know a lot of writers in the, uh, in the productivity space don't think enough about you know they have a book. That could essentially be a long article, and so what they do is they fill it with a a bunch of anecdotes which you know pad the book and, and get them to that word count that they promised their publisher uh, and so <laughs> that's that's kind of the starting point once I have the, the 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 amount of words that I want to write, the first book that I wrote was my target was eighty thousand that um, this this second book the target was 70,000 my, my editor you know my editor will tell you like i i told chris like i could he could write whatever the hell he wants and and i'll put it out there but but uh, you know i like having the structure so what i do is then at that point cuz i had about 20 i think about 20 25,000 words of pure research notes that that were gleaned from all the studies that i was looking at and kind of piecing those together is i had those broken down and kind of really, really, roughly distributed uh, inside of that framework that that I was working from that detailed table of contents, and then I looked at the relative word count i don 't know if this is interesting to anybody, but maybe it is the the relative word count of each of those uh, chunks of research that that fit into each of the chapters and so if you know one uh, of those chapters had about three thousand words of research notes and another had six thousand words of research notes, I would you know times that by by whatever multiple to get to seventy thousand words, and then that would be the word count uh, for that specific chapter, so that the 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 density of the information was approximately the same uh that that spanned across the entire book uh, and so I, I think this is um you know it's something that you know where, where you have a larger project like this um where you know there there's kind of the um the the you know the, there's the trees in the forest you, you, you can kind of look at that ground level okay what am I, what am I actually going to write about but then you have the broader landscape of the book itself the the architecture of the book itself and I, I think controlling for the density there uh, of information and just kind of having a a rough target so you you know if you're back on track I I don't like meticulously look at every sentence but I, I don't really go back and edit uh, an incredible Lot afterwards, because you know, sim- simply because uh, the the book is pretty well thought out. There, there's a the deep, detailed table of contents, there's the research, you mash those together, and then you have um, you combine that with the thoughts in your head and the thoughts that you think your way through when you're actually writing the thing. And then you have uh, hopefully a product that you're proud of at the end.
0: So, if I understand that right, you're kind of tracking the amount of notes. Relative to the amount of uh, the length of that chapter to yeah. determine the sort of information density of
1: that chapter or the research density yeah. of that chapter. Yeah, exactly. So, so let's say the book had two chapters and, and in the first chapter, I'd made 1,000 words of research notes. And in the, the second chapter, I'd made 2,000 words of research notes. Um, it, you know, when, when you got the finished book, the, the first chapter might be 20,000 words and the second chapter might be 40,000 words to, to make that combined word count of 60,000, but, you know, spread across about 10 chapters or so, uh, with very uh, much more jagged numbers.
0: Mm Hmm. Oh, that is, that is interesting. Okay. So it's been, I hope that's
1: interesting. Like it's one of those things like, like I've never really explained this before that this writing process that I have, but I personally find it really like I I try to be really thoughtful about, you know, not, not just the granular ideas in the books that I write, but also the, the broader architecture of a book is because I can really, really appreciate a book that is well laid out you know and well thought out and and it has that uniform density cuz ultimately like the the editor that i work with at 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 penguin he's he's like he's king shit like he's he knows his stuff um, and he's a better writer than I'll ever be. He edits novels. He edits books like this. He edits popular psychology books. He edits everything under the sun. And so I want to get it in the best shape that I possibly can. And I don't want him fixing shit. I want him to to push on the limits. I, I, I want to write at the limits of my ability, at the edge of my ability, so that when he gets the words, he's able to push it even further and, and bring his unique taste to it as well.
0: Well, it shows because your book is not one of those books that's that's you know an article with filler in it. It is very dense. <laughs> it has a, a nice mixture of you know a lot of times when when scientific studies are being uh, cited again and again, I tend to get bored. But that's yeah. not the case with your book. It, it is it is well woven with um your 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 experiences and your own observations from your own experimentation and you know we're, we're almost out of time and we haven't even really gotten to the book too much so uh <laughs> I, I, can you uh, give it which is entirely my fault can we get to the uh, or can you describe uh the difference between hyper focus and scatter focus which is something that i found really interesting
1: Yes. So this is, you know, to give a, we have Cole's notes up in Canada. I guess you have Cliff's notes, you know, in in the US. Is there an equivalent in Columbia? I
0: I don't, I don't know. I still just get all my, all my books are still uh, in English so far, most of the time. But, but, but I will say there, there seems to be a thriving industry of making uh, summaries of best selling uh, -selling books on, on Kindle, uh, not by Cliff Circle.
1: So. Yeah. There, there's like that cottage industry of like the crappy cover and it'll say like, a summary of Chris Bailey's Hyperfocus. And it always has like a, a two-star rating on Amazon from <laughs> one person who, who bought that instead of the actual book. But yeah, it's, so it, it's essentially a book about managing our attention deliberately because... um so often we allow the world around us to have control over our attention, and uh, you know there are kind of there are kind of these two uh, attentional modes that that, that I glean from the research. There's uh, hyperfocus, which is when we bring our complete, uh, deliberate attention to one thing, and and to best get there, we have to do some things that that we know how to do, um, but some things that we might not. You know, setting stronger intentions at the beginning uh, that that are. You know more specific, but also in some curious ways, you know setting um, what what are called implementation intentions, eliminating distractions, which we can do so in some fun and and curious ways, and then bringing our attention back gently when when it wanders to think about something else so that that 's kind of a state of deliberate focus where we choose what we focus on before we find ourselves focusing on something and where, you know, we kind of regain a bit of control of our attention from the world around us. And the corollary of hyperfocus is what what I like to call scatter focus, which is a state of deliberate mind wandering. And, And so mind wandering, it's a huge pain in the ass when we're trying to focus, when our intention is to focus. But when our intention is to be more creative and come up with more creative insights, deliberate mind wandering is in a league all of its own. Uh, and especially with planning, you know, chances are if you think back to when your best idea hits you, you're not focused on anything. Maybe you're, excuse me, taking a shower for, for an example, and and your mind wanders to a few of the uh, dots in your mind that that you then connect in that moment, and then. You know, boom, uh, you, you get this brilliant light bulb insight that strikes you from out of the blue. And it, it's, it's because of the fascinating places in the down right? Productive and uh, creative places that our mind wanders to, we wander to think about the future uh, 48% of the time when we let our mind wander deliberately. Uh, We think about the present about a third of the time and the past uh, only about 12% of the time. But what happens when we bounce between these three mental destinations, we bounce from the present to the future to the past to the present to the past to the future, we connect. These three temporal destinations to unearth these insights that we would never arrive at otherwise, that require these logical leaps in thinking. And so, you know, it, we we tend to think of our attention as this this um, you know, th- this thing of whether we're focused or th- you know how how intense we're focused on something. But what you'll find in practice is it's this this beautiful dance um, between the focused and the un focused mode of our mind that leads to, to uh, us becoming more productive and creative. Hmm.
0: And as people are listening to this, uh, they're, they are thinking about their new year, this episode will be coming mm-hmm. around around then. Uh, what would be your recommendations uh, to leave with our listeners if they are looking to have a very focused
1: 2019? Yeah. Look at what... Applications and what websites and, and distractions in your life actually add meaning and which ones actually make you happy. Um, because we tend to focus, you know, our attention is fascinating. We gravitate to focus on anything that is pleasurable. We, we, uh, also focus on anything that is threatening and we focus on anything that is new and novel. And when something is a combination of all three things, we tend to really focus on it. But, what is pleasurable and threatening and novel in the moment uh, is sometimes, you know, it's always more stimulating than what we truly want to be doing, but it doesn't necessarily always make us happier. And it doesn't necessarily make our lives more meaningful. And, and so what I would encourage folks to do is kind of do a detox, a spring cleaning of the the things that occupy your attention in your life. Um, look through the apps on your phone and ask, okay, do I get... Genuine enjoyment from uh, the social media apps that are on here, wh- or which ones do I get genuine enjoyment from? Look at the websites you visit out of habit, the news websites the the other websites that uh, up to, update you about the state of the world. Do those things provide you with uh, lasting meaning and happiness, or or is it the people in your life that that, that these things kind of get in the way of and, and so I, I think that you know it 's something that I've been thinking a lot. About lately, over the course of writing this book and beyond, is you know d- d- we're so stimulated by default, and it's because we have this novelty bias embedded within our brain's prefrontal cortex, where our brain actually rewards us with a hit of dopamine for every new and novel thing uh, on which we direct our focus. Um, and so, because of that, we're we're at this very high level of stimulation, but also because of that, we're less thoughtful, we're less insightful, we're we're less uh, deliberate about what we do and what we think and what we say and, and what we piece together in our mind. Um, and, and so I, I would encourage folks to do that is, you know, look at what you pay attention to over the course of the day. Look at where your happiness and meaning comes from uh, and really reflect, like, do those things match up? Because when we focus on what's stimulating, that isn't always the case. Great advice for having a Focus
0: 2019. Also, check out Chris's books, uh, The Productivity Project. The new one is Hyper Focus. Where else can they find more of you, Chris?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, so those are in any bookstore. The, my site is called alifeofproductivity.com if you want to check that out. Th- thank you so much for having me. I'm happy we got through this together, man. <laughs> yeah,
0: thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Is Love Your Work helping you find your unique creative voice? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to become the creator and human you want to be? If so, please be a part of making this a special and nourishing and thoughtful show. Support the show on Patreon. You'll be an even bigger part of this show than you already are. If you contribute just a coffee a month, you'll be helping support the hosting and production of Love Your Work. Everyone has some unique creative gift to offer the world. Together, we can give people the tools they need to bring that work into the world. The world will be better off for it. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash This is a different kind of model for supporting the work you love. The choice is yours. Vote with your dollars, put your money where your mind is, and keep Love Your Work going. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at patreon.com slash that's patreon.com slash k-a, d as in David, a, v as and Victor, y. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, such as mini-sponsor Roxana Maynard of Agility Alchemist at agilityalchemist.com, and top supporters such as Jeffrey Mason and Vitas Pankovicis. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Kadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Tadavi Inc.,